Hallelujah, Heavenly Father. Today, Lord, standing before us just moments ago was a metaphor of our own salvation. A brand new baby that you've delivered into the arms of a couple in this church, Gene and Marissa. Your word says, Father, through the mouth of your son to the inquiring Nicodemus, that unless a man be born again, he will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so it is, Father, with every baby that we welcome into this church, we're reminded that we must become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And more than that, by the power of the Spirit's wind blowing on the soul of every individual, we must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And because Jesus Christ shed His blood, broke His flesh, and the same was spilled out on our behalf for the remission of our sins, we can celebrate newness of life today. Every one of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior can relate to that little infant that we saw standing before us a moment ago. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for beautiful pictures like this in your word. And in so doing, Lord, in so giving, you condescend to us. The ineffable can be known. The unapproachable can be reached by mere mortals because our God has made a way to reveal himself to us in spirit and truth, in your word written on the heart of every believing soul here. I pray that you would bless the giving of your word today and may it prosper for that which you have intended. May it not return void. May it go forward by the power of the Holy Spirit so no man gets the credit, but Jesus Christ gets all the glory. And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to join together, and it seems especially so today. And I hope you're feeling that same sweet spirit of fellowship and privilege in our Lord Jesus Christ as we gather. To continue in the thread that the Lord already has us on, I would encourage you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 13. And we'll read some of the clothes of Paul's great work, his second letter to the church recorded here in the canon for us this morning. The title of today's message is Diagnostic Imperative. Diagnostic Imperative. Maybe I'm expanding your vocabulary along with delivering this word with those two words, but what's denoted there, what the meaning of that title simply is, is diagnostic is like a test. An imperative is a command. Paul makes a command, delivers a command, that is Christ through his apostle, to the church to test themselves, examine themselves. And so we receive this commandment secondhand as we read it in the scripture. And we know if we are believers and share a state similar to the Corinthian church when they heard this letter, we ought to heed these words as well to examine and test ourselves. So let's read here directly Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 through 7. Here we read, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed to test. But we pray to God that you may, do, that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test. But that you may do what is right though we may seem to have failed. 
Here at the end of Paul's admonition to the Corinthian church, in his summary thoughts, he includes this very important instruction and last word. Examine yourselves and test yourselves to realize or to see or to double check if indeed Christ is in you and if indeed you are in the faith. This is a serious admonition to be sure. I'd recall, or I would like to remind you of last week's message from Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, a similar letter to a similar group. A new fledgling Christian church in the pagan Gentile realm had been planted by the Apostle Paul and now being nurtured by his letters and directions to them. The Romans were in danger of doing one thing, at least, and that was taking lightly their salvation. Paul tells them in chapter 11 of his great work, his magnum opus of salvation as some have called it, that they ought not take lightly or in a glib or cavalier or casual fashion the fact that they, an unlikely people group, outside of natural, the natural Israel or natural inheritance of the sons of Abraham, received God's favor. It was an amazing miracle that was prophesied of old and fulfilled in their time, yet prior to whole people groups had remained in darkness until such time as the light of the dawning of Jesus Christ had risen upon the Gentiles. Until Jesus Christ was walking in Naphtali and Zebulun and Galilee of the Gentiles away by the sea, that glorious prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 had not been fulfilled to the degree that it had by the time Rome and Corinth had a church among them. And Paul knew that there was a danger in them receiving this great reward, that they would soon forget the significance and the severity as well as the kindness of God. In Romans 11, the admonition is, do not forget the kindness and the severity of God. Kindness towards you in that in God's grace and mercy alone, you unlikely people group, namely the Gentiles, have received salvation. But severity, when you consider that a whole people group, the Jews, was cut off in order for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. Or the fact that you yourselves were cut off prior to that moment when a missionary stepped onto your soil and declared Jesus as Lord in the form of Paul. Or the severity of the possibility of being cut off if you do not take with awesome fear and reverence that great gift. As Paul says, if you become proud and if you become arrogant, Against those branches that were cut off, you yourselves are in danger of incurring the same fate. And do you not know that I, God speaking, the first person in sovereignty, at least in my paraphrase of that passage, is powerful enough to graft back onto the olive tree those wild or those branches that have been cut off? In family worship this last week, I was meditating for myself the kind of affections, the kind of worship. I ought to feel when I consider truths like this declared in Scripture. And I was trying to communicate to my sons and my daughter that kind of heart that we should have so that we consider the kindness and severity of God or in the Corinthian admonition that we diligently and regularly, as a matter of course, test and examine our hearts to see if our heart, our attitude is appropriate in light of what we've received. And this is the picture that came to mind. I'd like to open with it as an illustration for you. Imagine yourself as a young child on a bicycle. There's a huge hill and a cliff, and your parents are down here having a picnic. 
you're riding your bike around and you get an idea in your head, I'm going to climb that hill, push my bike up, and once I get to the top, I'll use that extra incline to gain momentum and show off to my parents what I can do. So here you are, seven, eight years old, you know, pretty new to the bicycle still. You push it all the way up this huge hill. You climb on your bike, and then you let gravity with a little extra pedaling take over, and you begin to rush headlong, and you shout at your parents, Hey, Mom, Dad, look at me. And here you are speeding, and all you're thinking of is how great you are on this bicycle and how you're going to show off your skills. And totally forget that there's a cliff, there's a precipice just beyond the picnic site. Your dad stands up with a fearful look in his eyes, and as soon as you rush past him, at the last possible instant, he reaches out and in the providence of God grabs your arm as hard as he can, jerks you from that bicycle. And that bicycle continues off the edge of the cliff, wheels still circling, pedals still turning, and it's about a three-second count. One, two, three, and then you hear the smash of metal and rubber hitting the stones below, and you realize as a child that that would have been your fate if your father hadn't grabbed your arm at the last possible instance. When your feet were swinging over the precipice of your demise, and then you were pulled back in by his strong and capable arm. Now, you've imagined, I trust in your mind's eye, that scenario. Now, how do you feel? You put yourself in the shoes that's just happened. How do you feel? Do you feel happy? Well, certainly. Do you feel only happy? Certainly not. Do you feel fear? I would think so. Do you feel awe? Do you feel a sense of pause? And what just happened? A sort of bewilderment? And then a thankfulness? And then tears flow down your face? And then your arms embrace your father? And then your mother comes over? And suddenly, your whole attitude and demeanor went from, I am just going to impress my dad by doing something I know how to do to an amazing sense of what a gracious gift your spared life is. I would submit to you in that little illustration is perhaps something of the way we ought to feel every time we gather in this place to celebrate, especially on a communion Sunday, salvation which belongs to our God, which has been granted by grace alone to us. We were the mindless and worst sinning, petulant youth who was careening headlong to our destruction. And when at our last moment, when we didn't deserve it, our Heavenly Father reached out, grabbed our spiritual arm, pulled us from the brink of hell itself, and ransomed us into His graces and into heaven one day ultimately eternal. Praise the Lord. This is the kind of feeling that Paul's epistles are meant to nurture in the Corinthians. They were meant to nurture in the Corinthians and the Romans and in Providence today. When Paul says, examine yourselves, what are we to look for? We're to look for appropriate heart conditions that display a gratitude and overflowing sense of awe, reverence, fear, and faithful, joyful service and obedience to Him in light of what He has done. And if that's substituted for anything self-centered, selfish, foolish, short-sighted, prideful, and arrogant, 
We need to confess, and confess the sooner the better. We might ask ourselves an additional question about 2 Corinthians 13, since it is so important in the context and theme of this book that we know exactly what Paul means when we are admonished to examine and test ourselves. We could ask this very important question alongside, what does Paul set forth as a standard for testing, for examining, for our diagnosis, to see how our spiritual health is measuring up? We've touched on this briefly throughout this series in 2 Corinthians, but today I'd like to touch on it as directly as I possibly know how. There's a second passage in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 3 through 10, where I believe Paul most emphatically sets forth the standards in a summary form of commendation or standards of testing to realize this about ourselves, that Jesus Christ is in us and that we are in the faith. As you're turning to 2 Corinthians 6, consider Paul's instructions for testing oneself and how they ought to serve, especially in our culture today and maybe in our own individual state, as smelling salts to the nose of someone who's unconscious. Perhaps an apathy has set in. Perhaps a state of relative, just brazen disregard. An apathetic state. In our own spiritual walk, as sometimes we are wont to fall into, well, this passage, 2 Corinthians 13, combined with 2 Corinthians 6, can serve as smelling salts to wake us up, to draw us from our stupor and from our, our irreverent haze, that irreverent haze that might bask in a kind of unqualified security or a kind of sense of entitlement that forgets the great price that was paid, Jesus' own body and blood. I believe that this is a danger in the church, and as we mentioned last week, it could be the reason why there is such whole-scale apostasy in this land. And it does seem generationally at least, at least that parents of former believing, I'm sorry, children of believing parents are now leaving the faith in droves. What do we need in these circumstances? Well, let us examine the rigorous standards of fealty, of fidelity, of faithfulness to Christ and His Word that the Apostle Paul has in mind when he closes this exhortation to the Corinthians. This is what the fledgling church needed then, and this is what the stupefied church needs today. It's a command for spiritual introspection, and it would serve believers well at any juncture in history or in their own life to heed this diagnostic imperative, this commandment to test yourselves. Again, again, uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the admonition is examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And now turning to 2 Corinthians 6, we find the standard that Paul sets forth, for commendation, or for testing himself. A brief note on context. Here, Paul is answering to those objections who wondered about his legitimacy as an apostle. Why should we listen to you, Paul, when we have greater orators, more schooled in perhaps the things we want to hear, who tickle our ears much better than you, and in fact, provide for us a far more entertaining scenario And Paul answers this not by giving them what they want to hear, not by catering to their affections which had gone astray, 
but instead by calling, to him to the, calling them to the standards which judge whether his apostleship is legitimate or not. And I'm making the argument this morning, by extension, we can apply them to do a diagnosis of our own spiritual life. Paul says in the second half of, of chapter 6, verse 2, Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He says in verse 3, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves. And listen carefully to the following list. These are the standards. In every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Verse 6, by purity, Knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. Verse 7, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Verse 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Well, that is quite a list indeed. Note the context as we consider this passage alongside 2 Corinthians 13. It would appear at this point in the epistle, towards the end that is, or the con- in the conditions that warranted this epistle, this letter in the first place, it would appear at this point in Paul's relationship to the church, in the life course of the Corinthian church, that the most troubling thing to Paul in this whole ordeal is, that the Corinth- is not that of the Corinthian church questioning his legitimacy as an apostle. It's not what they're saying about him that's most troubling, in other words, as much as what their questioning reveals about them. It seems, again, the most troubling thing to Paul in this situation is not what they said about him, but instead the things that were in their mind that caused them to question and their frame of mind and their thinking, what that said about the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul opens his first epistle to this body by saying very clearly and emphatically what he has determined to know among them. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now this Corinthian church might have been more inclined to be attracted to the lofty speech and wisdom of man that the Greek orators in their familiar surroundings might have boasted, or perhaps even the Jews who sought a sign, as he said in chapter 122, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But again, he emphasizes verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Paul had determined to interact with his church as the and in that interaction to establish as its foundation Jesus Christ, him crucified, and to determine not to know nothing among them, decide to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, if the church questioned Paul 
And what were they questioning? They were questioning Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They were questioning that the most foundational and attractive and worship warranting reality among them was the gospel at its very core. This was the problem. So when Paul offers his own credentials, he doesn't just stop there to satisfy their inquiry. He actually establishes them as standards so that they would do the same. At the close of the book, again, the context is, Paul answers their objections. He says in verse 3, for instance, of chapter 13, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And then he says again, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So having submitted to their cross-examination, says you're seeking proof that Christ is in me. He says, now let me give you my concern in this final thought. I am concerned about Christ in you. You have a testimony now of the standards of examination to see and to search the heart, to see whether you are in the faith that I have demonstrated to you. Now take that seriously and apply it to yourself. Do we need to hear this admonition today? Is the church today in danger of losing the standard that we ought to apply and hold ourselves accountable to Is there anything among among us that we appreciate more than Christ Jesus and Him crucified? What are we questioning today? You see, the Corinthian church was questioning things. They were bringing their grievances and their objections. They had concerns. But the problem was, is they were misguided. Their concerns weren't accurate. Their concerns were not a reflection of what was truly needful in their own life. In these days, the church is concerned and asking questions, questioning everything just about. But oftentimes, what's revealed in that questioning is their own lack of discernment. And it tells us the things that we question and how we apply the standards of Scripture or what we consider the standards of Scripture. It often tells us more of the state of our heart than it does benefit us in what we're actually scrutinizing. For instance, the church of late, and this has been a topic of discussion I've considered some, has been rejecting hymns. Rejecting the great psalms, songs of the faith for simple, more abstract, and personally oriented worship. This lately has come to my attention because I didn't grow up in a tradition that had too many hymns, and I didn't grow up appreciating them to the degree that I ought, and I blame nothing except my own short-sighted heart for that, my own sinfulness. But lately, as I have revisited some of the texts of the great hymns of the faith, I consider it a near travesty that we don't sing more of them in our church experience. There's a reason why we've neglected them, but is it a good one? You see, we've questioned our worship practice, but have we employed the right standard? Recently, just another example of our society willing to question things. There was a capital punishment case that came up before, I believe it was a court, the Supreme Court of Colorado. And the prosecutor, the prosecution, 
to make their case strong in levying the seeking to have the capital punishment levied against a crime cited Genesis 9-6 where God tells us it's the first principle of justice after Noah leaves the ark that for man's life I require a life. The case was thrown out not on the basis of whether or not there's evidence that the crime was committed but on the very basis that the word of God was actually there to make a case for prosecution. You see, in our society, we're questioning the authority of the Word of God in relationship to jurisprudence. For the average American today who is responsible for adjudicating law correctly, for the magistrate, to the judge, to the Supreme Court, we've questioned the Bible as a framework, the foundation, and the authority of ethics and justice and law anymore. What does this tell us more about? Does this tell us that the Bible is frail? Or does this tell us that we are in a bad way? These people were questioning Paul, but their willingness to question him really betrayed a a lack of a value for Christ crucified because that's all Paul stood for. If you didn't like Paul, you didn't like Christ. If you don't like the Bible's justice system, you hate God. If you don't like the hymns that are the, the ones I'm thinking of anyway, they're so theologically rich and deep in meaning, you could have a selfish attitude or idea of worship. Think of another area. We've been questioning the roles and the definitions of family and the sacred institutions laid out in Scripture, and thereby questioning the very created order itself in our society. We've called these things cultural nuances in Scripture. And I'm reminded this week that, I think it was this week, the Grammys, Grammy Awards, you know, that pinnacle of what our culture considers significant. Something different happened this year. There's some song called Same Love that was sung and multiple homosexual weddings took place simultaneously. As far as I know, the first time that that has happened. Very interesting. Very disheartening. Very perverse. The moral slide has reached a state where that image I opened up with, that illustration of a cliff, makes you wonder exactly where we are, socially speaking. I surmise we're crashing on the rocks. Well, when we question God's order in creation, the roles and distinctions for the family, for the father, for the mother, for the children, and how important they are, are we making a good case that the Bible is an archaic document that really isn't worth all that much in our progressive, postmodern, 21st century era? Absolutely not. Our questioning tells us more about where we are wrong than it, t- than it tells us that God is wrong. God is truth, and His truth will set us free. The Word of God is immutable and never changes, always accomplishes what God intends and will never return void. And just because we deny its truth and precepts does not mean it will return void. It means that it will be a witness before us, and when we stand before the court of God, it will demonstrate that we stand worthy of judgment, and so we will be judged. Paul set forth these standards in 2 Corinthians for the church to consider. In the depth and in the length, in the intensity that they needed to, so as to reorder their ideals, so they did not drift into gross, judgment-worthy apostasy and become a society in short order that would leave the standards of the Word of God, replace it with the wisdom of man and their own thinking, and thus incur Great deception and judgment. 
Here's a heading for you. Diagnostic categories. Spiritual diagnostic categories identified by the prepositions in 2 Corinthians 6. There's five prepositional phrases that accompany this list. The word by, the word in, the word with, the word through, and the word as. And to order these into five categories, if we consider what Paul means when he says by, perhaps we could add this phrase, substantial evidence of faith. Paul sets forth the following standard, a diagnostic category for spiritual health. Everything that follows the word by indicates substantial evidence of faith. Paul says, as servants of God, again, this is chapter 6, verse 4, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. And then there's a list following the preposition in, but then we pick up by again in verse 6. By great endurance, and then secondly, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God. By, the word by indicates the evidence of faith that is substantive. You'll note this list is similar to the fruit of the Spirit that's offered in other places. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, faith. This is the work of the Holy Spirit evident in the heart of a believer, and here it's listed in similar terms. There's a great endurance, a purity, a knowledge, a patience, a kindness, the Holy Spirit Himself, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God that ought to be evidenced when we test ourselves to see if Jesus Christ is in us and if we are in the faith. So again, we put these two thoughts together. We find Paul leaving the church with this admonition, do as I have done, search yourselves, place yourself on the cross examining table, if you will, and see if you are in the faith, examine to see, Test yourselves, or do you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? That's the imperative, the diagnostic imperative in 2 Corinthians 13, and here are the standards. Or here's the list of what we look for in 2 Corinthians 6. Search your heart and see if you find there great endurance. Do you, believer, find great endurance in your heart? How do the afflictions, hardships, calamities, and beatings of life affect you? Do they tend to rattle your cage a little bit more than you would like? Do they push you dangerously close to questioning God and the very basis and basic truths that are in Scripture? Do they send you to the precipice of doubt and depression and leave you seemingly, at least in your heart anyway, without a lifeline? If so, repent, because the hand of God is so strong that He will never lead you through something, a fire that you won't be protected through. He will never lead you into waters that will drown you. His hand is always there. He will never guide you through a shadow of death so dark that you cannot see and stumble over the cliff. His rod and His staff are sufficient means to bring you through. Check your heart and see if there is great endurance there. And if you find yourself weak and fearful, repent, run to the cross. And in communion this morning, remember the substance of your faith. As evidenced in your heart, is made possible by the death, the work, and the great courage of Jesus Christ. We remember Him who for the great joy set before Him endured the cross, 
Even when we endure our own struggle with sin, which hasn't been to the shedding of blood yet according to Hebrews, and when we focus our attention on Him, it will build great endurance. We can take up our own cross and follow Him. Just one example, how taking the whole of 2 Corinthians as standards for self-examination, for introspection, might be applied in our life today. Look for, in your own life, substantial evidence of faith, great endurance, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God. I'll pause there and move on to point number two. Please note that today's message does not exhaust these by any stretch. Each one of these is worthy of a sermon in itself, to be sure. I would just like this morning to provide for us some helpful categories for self-assessment. And this first category I've given you is to look for substantial evidence of faith. Secondly, the preposition in indicates steadfastness under trying conditions. I've already mentioned that the preposition by indicates substantial evidence of faith. But everything that follows the word in could be seen to indicate steadfastness under trying conditions. So again, what standards does Paul set forth to do a spiritual diagnosis of our own heart? To identify ourselves and see where we stand in relationship to the faith. Well, where do we stand in relationship to steadfastness under trying conditions? Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 6, we commend ourselves in every way. There's that preposition. And then again in the next, in a few words over, it says, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger, steadfastness under trying conditions. I've often mentioned how it seems that Paul is really a prototype believer. You know, I don't know that any one of us, and God forbid that we would, have to suffer to the extent that Paul did. I do know that the Holy Spirit is powerful enough for in each of us to bring us through if that was His sovereign plan for us. One reason I think that Paul seemed to suffer more than anyone that I know at least is because in God's design, he was something of a prototype disciple. By his testimony, by his ministry, he was able to show, not because of his own merit, but because of the Holy Spirit inside of him, overcoming power in diverse and hard, difficult circumstances, ones that most people would never wish on anyone and hope against hope that they will never experience. Things like afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, and sleepless lights. However, though that list may be foreign to us, at least in its extent, we can certainly derive from it a principle. Are there conditions in your life that you wouldn't wish upon yourself that you are going through right now? Have there been trials, maybe in the financial area? Have there been hardships, maybe where expectations have fallen short? Maybe you are getting so weary of bringing the same prayer request before the Lord that you're tempted to give up and just not voice your concern this time. Maybe you have been believing for something for so long that your patience is stretched to its very limit because of what God is challenging you to endure. But Paul says that steadfastness under these conditions gives us the great assurance of our faith. If your faith was never tested, you would never know it is real. We are limited. We are not finite. We can't see 
into our own heart very well because it's deceitful and, it's deceitful and corrupt. And we certainly don't have the omniscient perspective of God to see into the heart of others. So God provides us a benefit in this regard. He says, judge the fruit. And God gives us difficult hardships and circumstances so that the environment of our life provides us the opportunity to see if we are in the faith and to see if Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning on the throne of our hearts. If you caught, find yourself caught under the throes of life, and are beginning to waffle, He nevertheless has led you here today. And that in itself is His grace and His grace alone. And you should take that as great encouragement. Remember, Paul tells us that steadfastness under trying conditions is a standard that we can apply, that we can pray for, pray for steadfastness under these conditions, and when it's evidenced to any degree in our life, consider it a grace, a grace that lets us know that when we test and examine ourselves, there's something there. There's something inside that evidences Jesus Christ and His blood work that He accomplished on the cross has taken real meaningful foothold in my life. You'll note that this list demonstrates the scope of the, su of the substance item endurance. Paul has said, you will understand that we are, understand that we are commending ourselves by great endurance. And then to answer the question, enduring what? He continues with all the in, all the uh, list that follows in. Great endurance in every way. Great endurance in afflictions. Great endurance in hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, and the like. Point number three, we're isolating standards, diagnostic categories to apply to our own heart to see whether we are in the faith. The word by indicates substantial evidence of faith. The word in, in indicates steadfastness under trying conditions. And I would submit to you the word with indicates systemic application of means. Systemic means it affects the whole. It could be systematic or it's something that's comprehensive. It pervades all of our thinking and all applications. Systemic application of means. God gives us ability, tools, practical ways to apply, implement, and to consider the Word of God authoritative in a broad scope of demanding circumstances. So we read of this in verse 7. By truthful speech and the power of God, and here's this shift, to with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Again, Paul's list of commendable aspects of his own ministry and character, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truth, truthful speech, and the power of God, but they're accompanied with something, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. With indicates systemic application of means. Weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. What does this indicate, this analogy, this picture? well-armed, fully equipped, taking advantage of an array of means at our disposal. Paul has demonstrated this, illustrated it in other passages. Think of the end of Ephesians 6 where the armaments, the armor of God is listed, helmet of faith, shield of, uh, of I'm sorry, helmet of salvation, shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness, sword of the Spirit, feed shod with the gospel of, of peace, loins girded about with the belt of truth, and so on. In this list, 
we find the weapons, one list of them, one example of how many and varied are our means to employ in the Christian life. It's a picture of being armed to the teeth to fight the good fight. Another way of saying, consider the Word of God authoritative for every problem, circumstance, situation, dilemma that you come in contact with. Is your sword of the Spirit in your hand too dull to pierce the, thought, to, to pierce the hide of any of your enemies? No, not a one will escape its double-edged blade when wielded correctly in the faithful Christian hand. I'm thinking, of course, of the imagery that John Bunyan gives us in the great epic Pilgrim's Progress. Though he was pushed to the brink of his own uh, patience or his, his own limitations time and again, it was his armaments that saved him in every circumstance. And though, as is, it, as is an accurate picture, he was on the very precipice of death over and over again, it proved He proved that God's complete armaments are absolutely sufficient for all of life's circumstances. Just so another way of demonstrating Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6 to be true. The weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Let me give you one illustration of this perhaps um, that I came across this week. In men's group this week, I was asked a question by someone who had viewed a YouTube video about the significance of economics, biblically speaking. And they referred to an incident in Genesis, the Old Testament, that I hadn't thought of for a while. And it was the time when Abraham, sojourning through Canaan, purchased a gravesite, a burial plot, for his wife Sarah, who had passed away. Ephron was the name of the landowner there, and they negotiated a price. First of all, Ephron wanted to give him the land. He was charitable, but Abraham refused. He said, no, I will give you just payment for this land. And they decided upon 400 shekels. And then Abraham paid him 400 shekels. And there in the scriptures, you can find this in Genesis 23, 14 through 16. He paid him according to weights current among the merchants. Weights current among merchants. The merchants. And the question that was brought in men's group was, is that a biblical principle? Are weights current among merchants in our land something the Bible has anything to say about? Another way of saying how comprehensive or sufficient is the Word of God in dealing with problems in this life? Does the Bible speak to economics? Would the Bible have a higher law where two merchants would agree in the exchange of goods or services or wares or what have you? Does the Bible declare that just weights and measures ought to be a measurement between brothers? Well, yes. Why? Because every economic interaction is a mini covenant. It's an agreement between two parties and therefore is a mirror of a relationship that we have with God, at least a small way. And God calls His people to have integrity in their relationships and to take advantage of every opportunity like that to demonstrate gospel faithfulness and gospel truth. Well, if you know something about biblical standards of economics and you communicate that in your business dealings abroad, you've just opened up a whole new avenue to preach the gospel in. You can be like Abraham. You can agree to a standard of measure that God would consider just and that God would consider honest and true. 
and you can demonstrate in your economic dealings a faithfulness that God demonstrates to you in His dealings with you. You see, justice is never sacrificed. Jesus Christ is the payment for our sin, our eternal life, our salvation had a proportional purchase price, and it was the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, our Lamb slain in our stead. You see the exchange there? Do you see the substitution? Do you see that whenever a price is offered, it ought to be in proportion to the value and worth of the object procured? Well, that's a principle in Scripture. And so we can be fully armed with the armor of God by taking into captivity every thought, every idea, opinion, and area of life for the goodness of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord in our interactions. Perhaps one example to stretch us so that the weapons of our righteousness, namely the Word of God and its principles, will be both in our right hand and on our left. This word with indicates a systemic application of means. That means that the Bible applies to every area of life. Without giving you any other examples in that regard, but um, I'll move on. There's many things that come to mind, certainly, but if you have questions about that illustration or other examples, perhaps as food for thought at a later discussion time on a Wednesday night or something like that. Let me move to point number four. Again, identifying standards to search our heart with to indicate whether or not we're in the faith we're in Jesus Christ. The word through indicates a stringency in spite of apparent influence one way or another. Paul sets forth again standards, diagnostic categories for identifying the soul and to see where we stand in relationship to the Lord. He says we have these weapons of righteousness. He had them on the right hand and on the left. Then he says in verse 8, through honor and dishonor through slander and praise. So what Paul is saying here is he has the substance of faith evidenced by this purity, knowledge, patience, and the like. He remains, he strives to be fully equipped with the full array of God's means on his right hand and on his left. These things have demonstrated to be effective and ready at his disposal in a variety of afflictions, hardships, and calamities, but not just in them, but also through some other conditions whether the situation provides honor for him or dishonor or slander or praise. Paul had a stringency, that is a commitment to truth, a strictness of principle in spite of whether or not where he stood had any apparent influence on those he was admonishing. Today we have a real problem in the way we seek to influence people. And our leadership theories demonstrate this. Often, if no one follows what we are saying, we'll retool our message, sometimes compromising its truth, in order to get people to follow. In other words, in our day, if preaching, declaring the pure, unadulterated Scripture uh, uh, graces us or earns us dishonor in the eyes of the world, we are not to change. Through honor or dishonor, we are to continue faithful to the charge. Through slander or praise. You can see where Paul, in some days of his ministry, would have had the glorious opportunity of celebrating as many said and cried in tears, thank you for bringing the gospel to our doorstep. Could you imagine when hordes of Gentiles come to know Christ in a pagan city, sin-ridden Ephesus, burning their books of magic in the open street, 
and celebrating that Jesus Christ is Lord? Could you imagine experiencing the joy of that repentance and camaraderie when those who had just been freshly ransomed from their sin are celebrating their freedom from a hell-bent life and they're rejoicing with Paul who had brought them the gospel at their glorious, at the advent of their glorious salvation? An incredible moment. A moment that would have been filled with honor and praise. But there are also times in Paul's ministry, times like he was addressing or that warranted this address right here in the Corinthian church, where the reception was not quite so glowing. Where those he had once preached to and they had said amen, now perhaps dishonored him and slandered him. Was he to change his tone? Was he to retool the gospel? Absolutely not. He was to continue, and so he did, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. How sensitive are we to the charge that we are intolerant, hating, Christians, exclusive bullies who think that our truth is the only truth and therefore are arrogant? Can we stomach the dishonor and the slander of our society that is increasingly emboldened to stare down the Christian and to rally behind opposition movements in major media? Or will we cave to this kind of cultural pressure? question came to my mind recently. You'll have to listen carefully because I don't want to be misquoted here. I don't want to misstate it either. But have you heard of the Westboro Baptist Church? They are the ones you've seen on the news perhaps that have these, albeit very crass, signs and they'll protest at uh, marches, uh, uh, at funerals for fallen soldiers and so on. So this is a, they call themselves a church. And um, they say some things that are in, in, in a shade or in some sense scriptural. I don't agree with their application. But it's interesting to see the vitriol that they incur when they go out and do these types of things. Everyone hates the Westboro Baptist Church. My question for you is, how far should we really distance ourselves from them? In other words, there are things that the Bible tells you and me to stand for that will incur the same spite, vitriol, hatred, malice, the same anger that is directed towards that aberrant church. So don't distance yourself so far that you never say anything that's considered slanderous by today's socially acceptable, politically correct standards. We will, if we are faithful, incur similar anger against us. There is no doubt about it, and it is happening around us. So if we find ourselves, as I judge it to be so, living in an era where we're more likely, if we're bold for Jesus Christ, to incur dishonor and slander, we're nevertheless to be stringently committed, strictly committed, and rooted and grounded in Jesus in spite of whether or not it has any apparent measurable effect on those who are listening. If it only makes them more angry, it doesn't mean we should shut up. If it only causes them to cry out in even persecution and lash out at us as they did Stephen, it, is, it, it should not be taken as a sign that we need to pipe down or be quiet. It wasn't by the apostles and it shouldn't be by us. Final point this morning. Standards. Standards to measure our spiritual state by. The word as 
and then followed by yet, indicates a standpoint unfazed, though misunderstood. Paul says in verse 8, second half, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, as unknown, and yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Do you see that from the world's standpoint, we are idiots. From the world's standpoint, it's a lost cause that we are pursuing, and we are just a gluttons for punishment. We are dying. We are cutting off from ourselves the opportunity of success by their standards. We are always rejoicing, but from the world's perspective, our life is not one that they would wish for. And indeed, it's fraught with all kinds of trials, tribulations, and sorrows. They don't see us as prosperous and rich, but instead as poor. They see us as having nothing, leaving everything. And yet we, in truth, possess everything. The standpoint of the believer is utterly and completely different from the standpoint of the world. Jesus Christ says, in order to gain life, you must lose it. Jesus Christ says that riches of this world can be the worst thing. For a man, especially if it prevents them by their idolatrous distraction from seeing that they are nothing, the seeing that they are needy in light of their spiritual condition. Jesus Christ says that we should count it joy when we are persecuted, even as he was persecuted. To be considered worthy of the fellowship of his sufferings is something not to be shunned, but something to be considered a badge of honor. Jesus Christ said, through his servant Paul, that if we live according to this standpoint and perspective, suddenly our whole worldview changes. And for us, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We will be utterly and completely marginalized, called crazy, insane, and everything else, as I mentioned in the previous point, but we should remain unfazed. Though the world would impugn us at every possible opportunity as imposters, No, before the Lord, if you measure up according to these standards, you can have the reassurance of heart that you are true because Christ through His Holy Spirit dwells in you. Though you are unknown, obscure, never going to become famous or important by man's standards, yet if you are known to God, what is fame? Nothing. I count it lost to gain Christ. What was gained to me I leave behind, said Paul. Only let me press on to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What is he talking about? He's talking about a death from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective, a life. He's talking about being punished, yes, but not killed, especially utterly in hell and destroyed in the eternal death. Sorrowful, yes, but always rejoicing because the moment that we incur in this life of suffering is nothing to be compared to what's promised in the eternal. As poor, but making many rich, Paul says, I have come to spend and be spent for your souls. He took more pleasure in overflowing than he did in accruing, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Having nothing, but possessing everything. Recently, uh, Eric Anderson, pastor of LifeSpring and Crosby, for the benefit of some of us local pastors, put together a small-town pastor's conference. There was only 10 or 12 of us pastors that came there. Gene accompanied me. There was two faithful servants who have ministered for 30-some years in small-town churches 
who've been faithful to the Lord that spoke to us that day, both of those guys had superior knowledge of the Word of God. I mean, triple my own at least. They had faithfully served Him. They were academically well-versed in theology. They loved the Lord, and you could tell it. They had a long testimony of faithfulness to the Word of God. They did not see themselves as small-town guys for a small-town purpose, though their churches nevertheless were small, maybe 80 to 100 people, and they hadn't grown all that much in their 30 years of faithful service there. Both of these guys and the quality of their proposition would make great speakers at any national conference, I would venture to say. I listened to a lot of proposition on my phone from national speakers, and nothing these guys said was inferior to them and their ability or its content at all. In fact, in many ways, and in some instances, I considered it superior. But as far as I know, they've never been invited to speak at the conference, for instance, I'll be attending this week in Minneapolis. They've never had anything published that I know of in a popular Christian periodical, magazine, Charisma, something like that. They've not become a household name. They don't have radio shows, yet they are faithful. They were faithful. Well, let me tell you, that spoke more to me, and I think there was more maturity represented in what they had to instill than just about, I don't know, three or four of the national voices combined. Why? Because it taught me by their, by the authority of their obedience, as well as their words, what Paul says here. They may be doing something that the world considers not a very high career ladder at all, maybe two and a half rungs at, the, at best, a dishonorable position, slander. Why would you waste your life and career and your intellect and all that energy speaking to, you know, 80 to 100 people in a small out-of-the-way town that doesn't appreciate you, someone might ask. Well, they are those who are a great example in our times, I think, of what Paul is describing here. They're treated as imposters, but true, unknown, yet well-known. Dying, and behold, they live, punished and not yet killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. Now, on the other hand, you could pursue the world's way of fame and success, and you could get lost and distracted real quickly. Nikki and I read an event yesterday, and it was sad talking to some parents who have just bought the old party cultural line to send their kids to secular higher education, colleges, and so on. You know, for the promise of a career, many of our students are losing their souls. Used to be you could go to the university, you could get your, you could, your soul might be saved and you could get a career, or at least your soul preserved and you could get a career. But of late, that's less and less the norm, and more and more it's been you could gain a career and lose your soul, and now it's finally getting to the point where a career is not even all that promising and certainly not your soul. Now, from the world's perspective, it is the mecca of the coming-of-age experience to pursue academic higher education in a brick-and-mortar school of higher learning college and so on. And, you know, it doesn't get you very far in the conversations at the family reunion with all your aunts and uncles asking what your plans are for your life if you tell them, why well, I'm just going to study on my own. Why would you waste your life, they might ask. Well, what does it gain to you if you lose your soul? If you submit yourself as a sponge to be educated by a worldview that denies Christ, that de declares that this world exploded by a bunch of uh, protoplasm being thrown up, by the, uh, up on the wall to see what would stick by mere time and chance, denying the very ontological basis of our faith. God is not a creator. He's a figment of the imagination for archaic peoples to have a crush to deal with the realities of life or so on. I mean, this is the attitude. 
that our sniveling, rebellion, sinful, petulant society has resorted to. And then they build buildings that are impressive with marble, with columns, and with people speaking, and then with reverb bouncing off those echoing halls, and they think that they've created something that's significant and a path to success. Well, if it does not glorify God, it glorifies man and ought to be shunned by us. The only thing that will be success for us ultimately in the end is if we search our heart according to the standard of Scripture and pursue a life, even if it's fraught with hardships, calamities, beatings, and imprisonments, that would bring glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. You might ask yourself at the close of this message, is there anything we can regularly do to remind us how important it is to search our hearts, as Paul says, the diagnostic imperative to examine yourself and to see whether you're in the faith, to test yourself, or do you realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Should we have something instituted regularly within our midst that reminds us of the importance to search our hearts? The answer is yes, and I know you know the answer as communion. What is a sacrament? Calvin answers that question by saying, A sacrament is an outward attestation of the grace of God which by visible sign represents spiritual things to imprint the promises of God more firmly in our hearts and to make us more sure of them. Again, a sacrament, taking communion, can be this for us if we embrace it in its biblical intent for us today. It is an outward attestation of the grace of God, which by a visible sign represents spiritual things to imprint the promises of God more firmly in our hearts and to make us more sure of them. Communion this morning, as we now shift and celebrate it, I would encourage you to remember the significance of each element, the bread and the blood that is represented by the juice. Christ's body and His blood was broken and shed for us so that we might, as we embrace our salvation, also embrace a faithfulness to Him by the Spirit in us that will make us more pure, more knowledgeable, more patient, more kind, with more genuine love, more truthful in our speech, and all of these standards that Paul uh, uses to show us the great benefits of our great salvation. Let's close in prayer, transition here. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray as we take communion today that you would remind us of the work that made the fulfillment of our prayers possible, that we might demonstrate in our heart and soul the things that Paul writes about as commendable standards to search our own heart and to see and to take seriously, Lord, the evidence of salvation in us. Remind us of that great moment today so that we with the Roman church, if they took your admonition, would stand in faith and stand in fear that we would, as you command, consider your kindness and severity. Kindness towards us in offering us salvation. Severity in that your Son became, Lord, became the sin for us and was crucified and slaughtered on a bloody cross to save us from our transgressions. And without that act of satisfying your justice, we would have no hope. Lord, let the thoughts fill our mind that we mentioned earlier, having just been grasped from the clutches of death, pulled back to the rock of Jesus Christ and standing in awe and fear at what you and you alone have done. 
We thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity your grace has provided. May we be faithful in considering it in its weight and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In the moments we have remaining, and as the worship team plays, if you are a believer, I would encourage you to avail yourself of communion this morning. And in the back, the table is set up, and you can just form a line and celebrate communion quietly by yourself or with your family or what have you. And in a few moments, we'll close.